many of you are here to hear about the, the Buddha's investment strategy. <laughs> um, we tend to forget, you know, reading the Buddhist texts, um, that these were teachings given by real people, given to real people in times of uncertainty. I mean, we tend to read them in, tech, in college classrooms and libraries, which tend to be very stable environments. And we tend to forget that the Buddha was teaching in a time of great instability in his day. And many of his teachings are designed for times of instability like we're facing right now. Um, economic meltdowns are nothing new. They've been happening to the world all along. Nobody likes economic meltdowns. Um, they give rise to a strong sense of insecurity and a lack of freedom. Insecurity is so you're not sure you're going to have your job next week. You're not sure you're going to be able to provide for your loved ones and their material needs. Lack of freedom in your sense that your options are shrinking. But it's important that we realize that there is actually a positive side to a situation like this and that we, le- that we learn that the platitudes that we have heard or what seem to be platitudes about the wealth of the mind, inner resources, really are genuine resources, something that if you um, take time to invest in them, take time to develop them, really can provide you with a security and a sense of freedom that are much greater and much truer than you can get by amassing material wealth. Um, There's a passage in the canon where a king's minister named Uga is coming to see the Buddha. And he's, uh, imagine if you were going to visit the Buddha, what would you want to talk about? Well, this guy comes to the Buddha and says, hey, you should really hear about this guy who is so wealthy. His name is Megara Rohanaya. He has a 100,000 pieces of gold to say nothing of his silver. And the Buddha says, well, I don't deny that that's wealth, but that is not the wealth of the noble ones. Because this kind of wealth is subject to fire, subject to being washed away by floods. Um, it is subject to being, uh, subject to kings and thieves. And I've always thought that's interesting how the Buddha always yokes kings together with thieves. <laughs> <laughs> and also he says it's subject to hateful heirs. You may amass a fortune and you decide that your children are really not, really not worth it, but they're going to run off with it anyhow. He says, however, there is another form of wealth which comes from within. And this is not subject to fire, thieves, kings, flood, or hateful heirs. Um, and he lists seven qualities of mind that he says are, are forms of wealth. And I, th- I think it's interesting to reflect on these seven qualities because for him, inner wealth is not a nebulous quality of feeling good or of feeling secure, but is actually based on developing very specific qualities in the course of your practice. The qualities are these. Conviction, virtue, shame. And I can hear bells ringing on that one. Compunction, learning of the Dharma, generosity, and discernment. Since these seven qualities are not open to fire, flood, kings, thieves, or hateful heirs. And it's also important to realize that they are sources of security in the mind, and they can be sources of freedom. Another quality that the Buddha identified as a form of wealth, which seems to un- un- underlie all of these, is a sense of contentment. In other words, it's a sense of enough. And it's interesting that the Buddha is very particular about where contentment applies. It, it should apply to things outside. In other words, what you have materially, you learn how to develop a sense of contentment around what is available to you so that you can devote your energy now to looking into the mind to see what areas of the mind um, are not good enough to be content with, areas of the mind that you can actually develop and improve. 
The Buddha once said that the secret to his awakening was that he never let rested content with what he had in terms of qualities he had in the mind. He learned contentment with things outside. Um, contentment with things outside, we have uh, sometimes we're told that this is going to be really bad for the economy. Um, <coughs> And this is where the values of the economy and your values of your own inner health, your own inner wealth, really do come into conflict. <coughs> Back in the time of the Cold War, um, in the 1950s and 60s, when American advisors were taking the Thai government under their wings and trying to help prevent what they felt was the domino effect of, you know, suppose Vietnam was taken over by the communists, then Laos and Cambodia would go, and then Thailand would go. And they thought they really needed to develop a strong economy in Thailand. And so they asked the Thai government, please go out and tell those Buddhist monks not to talk about contentment. <laughs> Bad for the economy. But you have to decide at some point, are you going to live for the sake of the economy or are you going to live for the sake of your own inner health? And this is where you have to make your choice. Based on that sense of material sense of enough, regardless of what you've got, learn how to review re- it as enough, then you can start looking at the qualities of the mind that really do need developing. Um, the first one, as I said, is conviction. And this is because if you just see developing these inner qualities as a kind of investment plan, you've got to have trust in what you're doing, have trust in your investment. Um, this is why there are firms named Prudential, Fidelity. And it's supposed to give an aura of trust around these um, kings and thieves that are taking your money. <laughs> Just as an aside, I was amazed. A student of mine told me the other day that his father uh, subscribes to the Wall Street Journal. And there was actually an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal saying that greed is good, that if we don't give large bonuses to the bankers, they won't work to help our economy. Um, I was shocked. Uh, (laughs) I wonder how much you can trust them. Conviction here, in the Buddha sense, is technically called conviction in the Buddha's awakening, that he really did awaken to the end of suffering and the path to the end of suffering. Um, to take this out of sort of formal language and put it into more everyday um, application to what does this mean in your life, the fact of the Buddha's awakening, or if you accept that the Buddha really was awakened, what does it mean in terms of your own sense of yourself? Um, and there are several things that are implied here. One is gives you a sense of the range of human capabilities, because the Buddha said he came to awakening through his own efforts. Um, secondly, it wasn't because he was some special being that he was able to do this, but he had qualities of mind that he developed that we all have in potential form. He developed qualities of heedfulness, qualities of resolution, qualities of ardency, which are things that we can all potentially develop ourselves. Some of the assumptions that go along with this teaching is that, one, your actions are real. When you act, it really is an action. Secondly, you are able to choose what you're going to do, what you're not going to do. There is freedom in your action. Um, Your actions lead to results. Your results are determined both by the views and knowledge underlying the action and the quality of the intention underlying the action. Um, add Add to this the conviction in the fact that the Buddha's awakening was based on developing mental qualities that we all have in potential form, it gives rise to the conclusion that human action can lead to the end of suffering. Now, this is a form of wealth because it gives you a strong sense that you really have possibilities of action. You're not totally a victim of events. There are areas in your life where you can make a difference, and it is important to try to make that difference, particularly since these actions, in terms of their quality, depend on qualities of mind that you're working on, it really is important that you look into your mind and develop your mind. 
all too often we hear that a spiritual life is fine for people who can afford it, uh, but people who have to work hard don't really have time for that. You forget that okay, the qualities of your mind are a wealth that no, no matter no matter amount of money can really replace, and they give you a sense of security that you can't get. They do, and they give you a sense of security that can carry you through periods of difficulty. Um, so, in doing this, they give you a sense of security and that okay, your life is really in your hands. At least part of your life is really in your hands. Part of your happiness is in your hands, and they give you a sense of larger possibilities in what you can do as a human being. You're not simply a victim of events that you can actually direct your mind, train your mind in such a way that it can learn to be happy in any circumstance. That's the kind of the promise of what the, the Buddha's awakening has to say. Based on that, the other next three qualities in the list, virtue, shame, and compunction, act as ways as preventing you from doing things that you know are going to be harmful. Virtue is the promise that you make to yourself that I'm not going to act in ways that will harm other people. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to kill. I'm not going to engage in illicit sex. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to take intoxicants. Notice that these are precepts that you take on of your own volition. There's nobody imposing anything from outside. Years back, I was staying out at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and one of the teachers was giving a course on the Metta Sutta, which begins with a line, this is what should be done by one who aims at a state of peace. He was going through the sutta line by line. When they got to that line, someone raised his hands. I said, I thought there were no shoulds in Buddhism. And they spent the rest of the morning discussing what there were shoulds in Buddhism. And it could have been, the discussion could have been cut short by noting that when the Buddha gives a should or an ought, he's, he's, it's conditional. If you want peace, if you want happiness, this is what you should do. He's not imposing on you from the force of his authority as a spiritual leader or some god coming down. But he says, this is the way cause and effect act in your life. And one of the things that you, if you want a state of peace, that you should try to promise yourself is you're not going to do anything harmful. Now this promise is strengthened on the one hand by developing a sense of compassion. Compassion comes from seeing that if you really want to be happy for any length of time, you can't base your happiness on other people's suffering. Because they're not going to want it to, to be imposed on like that, and they're going to do whatever they can to destroy your happiness. There's a story, I may have told it here before, King, Ma, uh, King Basanadi in his palace with Queen Malika. And they're kind of one-on-one up in the bedroom of the palace. And at one point, the king turns to this queen and he says, Is there anyone that you love more than yourself? And you know what he's expecting? He's expecting, oh yes, your majesty, I love you more than I love myself. And then, you know, who knows what's going to happen after that. Um, but no, Queen Malika is no fool. She says, no. There's nobody I love more than myself. How about you? <laughs> and the king has to admit, well, really, there's nobody I love more than myself either. So that's the end of that scene. <laughs> the king goes down to see the Buddha and reports what this conversation was. And the, and the Buddha says, that's true. You survey the world. You love yourself more than anyone else. And you survey the whole world. You won't find anybody who loves anyone else more than themselves. And he says, what should you, should you conclude from this? You should conclude that you will never harm anybody. This is based on two things. One is that you have a sense of empathy, that we're all coming from the same place. We all want happiness. We all want to avoid pain. And then secondly, in terms of enlightened self-interest, if you, as I said, if your happiness depends on somebody else's suffering, they're going to try to destroy it. So if you have any wisdom at all, you're going to try to find a happiness that doesn't create any harm for anyone else. 
So this is the sense of compassion is what animates this, your decision to take take on the precepts as a part of a promise that you make to yourself that you're not going to harm anyone. Secondly, in taking on a precept like this, you give value to your words and deeds. Now, that you don't treat them casually. Excuse me. And when you don't treat them casually, other people will take them more seriously, particularly in terms of your words. If you throw your words around with any concern as to whether they're true or beneficial or timely, no one else is going to take them seriously. We've all heard the story of the comedian who ran out one night on the, on the, on the stage and said, there's a fire, there's a fire, there's a fire backstage, and everybody laughs. He says, no, no, it's true, there's a fire, and they laugh more. <laughs> if, if you aren't used to speaking truly, taking your words seriously, there comes a point where other people don't take them seriously either. If you give value to your words, your words are going to be worth more to other people as well. They'll give them more value. So in taking on the precept like this, you are creating a kind of wealth in your actions. As for the qualities of shame and compunction, um, many of us think of shame as an unhealthy emotion because we think of well, being ashamed of ourselves, low self-esteem. In the Buddhist sense, shame is not low self-esteem. It's a product of high self-esteem. You regard yourself as a worthy person, a principled person. You think of doing things that are mean and nasty, and you would be ashamed to do that. In other words, it's shame around that particular action rather than shame directed at yourself. So this comes this comes with a high sense of self-esteem. This is below me. I don't want to do that. And this protects you together with compunction, which is a quality where you look at the results of the action, you realize, okay, this, this unskillful reaction is going to cause a lot of harm and suffering. I don't want to go there. I don't want to bring on that harm and suffering. When you have these two qualities working with you, they work to prevent you from acting on impulses that you know are unskillful. And in this way, you protect yourself from having to endure a lot of remorse afterwards. Because um, of the things that cause remorse in life, it's the things that you know you did that were unskillful. You went ahead and did them anyhow. And then you see the harm that results. They did. Um, there was a history of... Um, the policies of the American army over the past century that was printed in the New Yorker a while back, which apparently during World War II, they actually had, um, instead of having just journalists embedded in the army, they had sociologists embedded in the army, psychologists, noticing, and their, their main interest was when the troops are being attacked, what, what percentage of them fire back and actually aim at the enemy? And they found that during World War II, it was a very small percentage that actually aimed at the enemy. Most people, when attacked like that, they couldn't bring themselves to kill another human being. So they'd fire up in the air, they'd fire away someplace else. There's only something like 15-20% of the people actually aimed at the enemy. Now the army decided this was untenable. So during the 50s, they learned, they learned, you know, they brought in a lot of psychologists to say, how can we help dehumanize the enemy in the eyes of our soldiers? And so in terms of the target practice they had and the ways they had of sort of getting people into the into the mode of being a killing machine, by the time they got to Vietnam, they had the percentages up over 90%. And then they began to notice afterwards that the veterans coming back from the Vietnam War were a lot more damaged psychologically than the ones during World War II. And apparently 90% was not good enough, so by the time of the Gulf War, they had it up to 90-something plus beyond that. And again more and more damaged people were coming back. And so you could see from this that if people psychologically from damage from the war 
it's much more serious for the people who know that they did something really bad, that they actually killed other people, that actually harmed other people, rather than the people who were harmed themselves. And people who come back wounded but not having killed anyone else are psychologically much more adjusted, much more <laughs> able to deal with situations than the ones who actually killed. Um, and so you, you hear of people who are going through an extreme amount of remorse over their past actions, and you realize they would, well, they would be willing to give any amount of money to wipe out that memory to be able to go back and not have done that. So this is why shame and compunction are an important form of wealth. They prevent you from doing the sort of things that you will have to feel remorse for in the future. So it's an important part of, important part of wealth that we try to develop this quality. You look at an action, you realize it's unskillful, you tell yourself, that's beneath me. Regardless of what the co- practical consequences might be, you said, I want to maintain my mental health, I want to maintain my psychological health on into the future. The same with a sense of compunction. So it's in this way, when you have a healthy sense of shame, it really is an important form of wealth. The fifth form of wealth is listening and learning the Dharma. Um, and these are teachings that teach you the value of training your mind, teach you the value of developing a life of generosity, virtue, meditation, trying to develop concentration, insight, and compassion in your life. Um, it's because it's good to have this kind of memory sort of floating around in your mind. It defends you against the values of society that want to turn you into nothing but a producer and consumer of material things. Realize that there's, there's something that's more important than the aims that these people have. Um, several years back, one of my students told me that when he was studying in, in Mexico, learning Spanish, the group of students who were down there were invited out by, by another group of Mexican students and had some entertainment, and the entertainment consisted of both groups singing to the other group folk songs from their national tradition, and the Mexicans sang some folk songs for the for the Americans, and then the Americans looked at each other and said, what folk songs are we going to sing? So they sang Gilligan's Island. <laughs> <laughs> TV commercials. Uh, you know, obey your thirst. You know. <laughs> and if we have this stuff r- rattling through our minds all the time without any other values to counteract them, we do tend to act on these things. There seems to be an you know, inherited wisdom um, in, in all the commercial jingles that we've, that we've been exposed to. And so it's important that you learn how to listen to teachings. And this means not only listening, but also thinking about them to try to get, come to an understanding and actually memorizing some statements that you really feel are wise so that you have a fund to draw on when times get difficult. During my time with my teacher in Thailand, John Fuang, during the years that when I was with him, if you would ask me, "What does John Fuang teach?" I would have been really at a hard, had a hard time kind of boiling it down to just a few succinct principles. The year after he died, however, there were problems in the monastery: questions of succession, questions of who was going to take over the monastery, what different agendas that various people had um, for the future of the monastery. And I was stuck in the middle. I had been put in charge of you know, training the new monks, but I was in a position with responsibility but no authority, which was a really bad position to be in. And I was feeling I was kind of the target of a lot of the issues that were coming up. And it was at that time that many of the teachings that John Fuang had given me began to come into my mind. I could remember, oh, when a difficulty like this comes up, he would say something like that. When this difficulty came up, he would say something like this. And it was having that fund of his teachings in my mind that actually got me through that particular year. 
So it's useful to look for readings where you feel that you're learning something or it's a wise principle, a good principle to live by. Try to memorize those principles. Keep them in mind so you have a fund to draw upon when things get difficult. The sixth type of inner wealth is generosity. Now, generosity here means not only giving material things but also giving safety to other people, um, giving of your time, giving of your knowledge, giving of your forgiveness, being willing to share these things. Because, because generosity is a form of wealth and that creates, on the one hand, a sense of the spacious, the freedom of having a spacious mind. When all your concern is, I've got this only this much and I can't really share it, I'm, you get afraid of you know, who's going to take it, who's, how it's going to get worn away. And as a result, your mind gets very, very narrowed as to what your potentials are, what your possibilities for happiness are. And living in a narrow mind is worse than living in a narrow room. In a narrow room, you, you, at least you can get outside some, but in a narrow mind, you can't get out of it. You're stuck there all the time. And so as you begin to share with other people, and as I said, it's not necessarily material things, but it's also sharing your knowledge, sharing your forgiveness, your mind grows. And at the same time, you're breaking down barriers with other people. And this is the difference between giving and selling. When you sell something to someone else, you're putting up a barrier. Okay, if they don't pay that price, they don't get it. But if you actually give somebody something to someone else, that barrier gets removed. So there's a connection that's created through giving. Um, there's an old riddle that they tell in Thailand. The riddle is this. Suppose you catch one fish, how do you get to eat it all year? And the usual answers are, well, you, uh, you salt it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one salted fish is not going to get you through the year. You boil it. No, one boiled fish is not going to get you through the year. The answer is you take it and you divide it up and you share it with your friends and neighbors. Then when your friends and neighbors get something, they share it with you. It creates a society where people can help one another. Um, we tend to think of generosity as kind of a generic value across cultures, but there's a particular Buddhist twist to the topic in the sense that the Buddha talks about when he gives his first introduction to the teaching on karma, the teaching that your actions do have results, he starts by making the statement, there is giving, which seems uncontroversial. Of course there's giving. But it turned out that this was a controversial issue in his time. This is because the Brahmins had already started teaching about the, to- the topic of dana, or topic of giving. And they were saying, yes, giving is really important, especially when you give to us. <laughs> <laughs> And there was actually a, a ceremony that the Brahmins would conduct for your ancestors. And at the end of the ceremony, they would say, okay, now we are speaking in the voice of your ancestors. Give. <laughs> we are hungry where we are. We are cold. We are thirsty. We are poor. Give money. Give clothing. And you're supposed to shell over stuff to the Brahmin. And then the Brahmin is supposed to say, it's not enough. You have to shell over more. Now, you can imagine after a couple of generations of this, you know, people began to resent the whole idea of giving. It's like the Donna talk at the end of the retreat. Everybody says, I don't want to hear this. Can we get it over with? Um, and so there was a reaction. Um, some of the other teachers in the Buddhist time were saying, you know, really, giving is a bunch of crock. On the one hand, we all die after, we're born, after a while, and there's really nothing left after you die, so it doesn't really matter what you do to one another because it's all, you know, everything's going to go up in a nova someday anyhow. So, and more or less, that's what they said. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's really no goodness done by giving because everybody just turns into nothing at death anyhow. Another belief was that 
everyone's actions are, are predestined from the past. So you are not really responsible for what you do. Since you're not responsible, there's no virtue in being generous. It's, it's just an action that you're programmed to do, so there's really nothing, no, no virtue in it at all. So when the Buddha was teaching the doctrine of karma, to make the point that, yes, one, we do have freedom of choice, and two, our actions do give results that are worthwhile, he starts out by saying, okay, there is such a thing as giving. And so he affirms the what is one of the basic principles of human civilization, is that giving is a good thing. It's a worthwhile thing. The Buddha himself said, if people realized the good that comes from giving, they would not eat a meal without having shared part of it. You see, even if it was your last meal, you would still share some of it if you knew the, the results that would come from giving. So we think about you know, our, you know, our shrinking... Well, they, this is one of the advantages of being a monk. You know, is it 401k? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of them. And all the other things. You see these things shrinking. And if all you can think of is, oh my gosh, it's going to disappear... You, you, it's still worthwhile to give because the wealth of the, for the mind that comes in, in exchange. Um, it may seem strange to think about you know, gaining in your, from your practice or having a getting mind. In fact, many times people are told you know, spiritual materialism is a bad thing. Having Practicing with any idea of gaining or getting is a bad thing. And that's bad in the sense that, you know, okay, you want to invest you know, five cents and you want to get a dollar in return. Or if you want to invest a little bit of your time and you want to get huge results. Or you want to get results by the end of the weekend. This is one of the big problems you face in meditation retreats. You've got only five days, February 27th to March 4th. (laughs) And you say, I don't want too much out of this, but at least, you know, the first jhana. (laughs) You're creating a pressure cooker for yourself. You've got to get those results within that particular period of time. And you're going to drive yourself over the, the edge, and this is why the te- over the edge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. And this is why the teachers have to tell you: don't have any idea of gaining anything out of this. Just learn how to be in the present moment, so you don't create those artificial pressures. But if you're thinking of the practice as a life-term, lifelong practice, you've got to get some idea. Okay, there's something to be gained out of this. Otherwise, it becomes pointless. It seems a waste of time. And so the, the Buddha, in teaching generosity, says it's, it's okay to expect a sense of happiness, a sense of well-being in return for your gifts. And it's, and it's, and it's important that you have this sense that you really are gaining something important in mind. Again, it's, this develops a sense of security, that you are the type of person who has a sense of enough that you can give to other people. And at the same time, it gives a sense of freedom. When you know that you have enough to share, you're not a slave to those few material things you've got. The seventh form of noble treasure, I've got to look at the clock here. Oh my gosh, okay, I've got time. Okay. The seventh form is discernment. Um, and generally, discernment here means having a clear set of goals that you really do want to put an end to suffering. And you have a, sense, a clear sense of the means to get there. In other words, you know that there are certain actions that are skillful, certain actions that are unskillful. You're clear on this. And then secondly, you not only know what they are, but you can... Get yourself to do the skillful things and get yourself not to do the unskillful things. There's a, point, there's a passage where the Buddha says, one of the measures of your wisdom is knowing that there are four types of actions in the world. First kind, things you like to do, give good results. Second kind, things you don't like to do, give bad results. 
And the Buddha doesn't use the term, but they're no-brainers. <laughs> Things you like to do give good results, of course you're going to do them. Things you don't like to do give bad results, you're not going to do them. It's the things that you like to do that give bad results. <laughs> and that you don't like to do but give good results. That's the measure, he says, of your discernment. The measure of your wisdom. In other words, wisdom is not just knowing about things. It's a pragmatic ability to get yourself to do things that you don't like to do but you know are going to give good results down the line. And this is, this is a very individual matter. How do you talk yourself into getting out of bed you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning when it's dark and cold outside and you want to meditate but part of you says, no way, no way. Um, one thing I found is helpful is ask yourself, okay, if I can't get up, which part of me cannot get up? <laughs> and then you test. How about my arm? Can my arm get up? Oh, yeah, I can get up. How about my other arm? The other arm can get up. How about my torso? Oh, there I am. <laughs> so, that's what works for me. You, you decide what works for you. <laughs> Having a clear set of goals and an, a clear sense of how you're going to get to the goals is a form of wealth in the sense you're not going to waste a lot of your time on useless things and useless activities. An important part of getting this kind of discernment is realize that you've got to make distinctions as to what's skillful, what's not skillful, what's important, what's not important, what's your business, what's not your business. I mean, very basic kinds of things. Um, and it re- re- involves developing a sense of judgment. Now, again, judgment is, it has, is one of those words that has some bad connotations in Buddhist circles. Largely because when we think of judgment, we're thinking of a judge sitting up on a bench, and we're down there below the bench, and he's deciding whether we're guilty or innocent. Now, this is not the model for the Buddhist take on judgment. Instead of a judge sitting on a bench, think of a carpenter sitting on his bench or a pianist sitting on her bench. The carpenter sitting on his bench is working on a piece of wood, trying to make something out of it. And as he goes along, he's trying to judge, is it going well, is it not going well? If it's not going well, what do I change? So instead of you know passing final verdict on something, it's using your powers of judgment as you go along as a way of learning. <laughs> the same with the pianist, as she's playing her piece. If she's judging, how does this sound? Can I put more feeling into it? You know, How do I phrase it? If I've played it one this phrase one way now, how do I go to you know, play it the next way down the line? Again, she's using her judgment as a way of improving her next actions. It's a basis of learning. If you look at judgment in that sense, it's very obviously a very wise thing to ha- be able to develop. So judgment involves making distinctions. Um, and if you look at the, the distinctions that the Buddha has you make, um, in the text describing the, the forms of wealth, he says, Discernment here means insight into arising and passing away, leading to the end of suffering. Now, arising and passing away is something very obvious. Things arise, things pass away. We see it every day. Big deal. And he says the problem is that you don't look into the arising and passing away carefully enough with enough powers of judgment. Our problem, many times, when we think about wisdom or discernment, is that we're trying to look behind things. What's operating behind this? We're trying to peek behind the surface of things to see what's operating behind it. And he says many times what you need to see is actually look right there in front of you and you're not really looking at it carefully enough. Years back they were doing a, uh, an experiment on different couples. They would get the couples all wired up so they could measure the sweat and their palms of their hands, their pulse rate, 
all kinds of physical things, and then they would take a video of them, and they would get them to discuss a, a minor irritant in their relationship. And they'd have them talk about it for 15 minutes. And then after they got all this information, they would play the video, and they would play only three minutes out of the video, but they would slow it down. And they'd say, look for the fleeting expressions on that couple's face. And if you see any contempt on either side, you know this relationship is not going to last. And they could tell with 90% accuracy just by looking at the, you know, the fleeting micro-expressions on the people's faces. Now, those of us who have devoted ourselves to you know, making the experiment of de- trying to develop a long-term relationship, actually getting married, and thinking that someone could look at us you know, interaction three minutes and they could tell whether the relationship was going to last or not, that's kind of scary. It's all on the surface. It's right there. And the thing is, are we going to read it or not? This is why when we talk about Buddhist wisdom, I think it's... um, I know that they've uh, copyrighted the phrase, but you can think of it as wisdom for dummies. Now, there's people who realize, like, I don't know, I want to learn. And they say, okay, you don't have to really think about what lies behind things, but look at what's what on the surface in your life. In particular... What are you doing that's causing pain? What are you doing that's causing harm? What are you doing that's not causing harm? What are you doing that's causing short-term pleasure? What are you doing that's causing long-term pleasure? Look for that. It's something very simple. You start with your outside actions. In fact, the Buddha said, wisdom begins with this question. What, when I do it, will lead to long-term harm? What, when I do it, will lead to long-term happiness? The reason this is wisdom is, one, you see that your actions are important and you're giving rise to pain or suffering or happiness, happiness and pleasure. And you also realize that long-term happiness is more worthwhile than short-term happiness. That's the beginning of wisdom right there. From there, you look deeper in and you, you, you take that principle that you develop from conviction, that you do have choices. Okay, What are you going to choose to do to give rise to more uh, long-term happiness? There's a verse in the Dhammapada where the Buddha says, if you see... A greater happiness that comes from abandoning a lesser happiness, be willing to abandon the lesser happiness for the sake of the greater one. And there was a uh, famous Pali translator who in his notes to the Dhammapada said, this could not be the meaning of this verse. It's just too obvious. (laughs) Well, yes, it's obvious, but how many people do you know really live by that principle? Many times it was the Buddha's task in life is to point out the obvious to people. If you're hitting yourself on the head and it's hurting, maybe you should stop hitting yourself on the head. From that, another principle that's very basic is is look at what's your business and what's not your business. Again, it seems very simple, but essentially it gets down to the fact, okay, there are things that you're experiencing now that are results of past actions which you cannot go back and change. But there are also things you're experiencing now that are results of things that you're doing right now. You can change that. Focus on that. That gets you focused on that particular issue. Secondly, you you look at the kind of suffering that you're experiencing in your life and you ask yourself, okay, what kind of suffering here is just built into the nature of things? What kind of stress is built into the nature of things? And what kind of stress am I adding? This gets down to a technical point, which the the Buddha said there are two kinds of stress in life. There's stress in the context of what you you may have heard, the three characteristics, that things are in constant stressful, not self. That kind of stress is just built into the fact that things arise and away, pass away based on causes. 
There is, however, stress and suffering in terms of the Four Noble Truths, which is based on ignorance and craving. That's not necessary. So again, you focus, this is my business. I've got to look into my ignorance. I've got to look into my craving. And having this kind of discernment is a form of wealth that keeps you really focused on where the real problem is. So as you're looking more and more carefully, both in your external actions and as you meditate, you look more carefully in your internal actions, you begin to see that you can actually alleviate a lot of the stress, a lot of the suffering that you've been carrying around. And John Sawat once asked a question. We have a mountain off to the east horizon of the the monastery. He pointed to the mountain and said, is that mountain heavy? And people sitting, oh, oh, this is a trick question. What do we say? (laughs) And he says, well, if you pick it up, of course it's going to be heavy. But if you don't pick it up, whether it's heavy or not doesn't really matter. There's so much in life that we pick up unnecessarily and carry around. And so it's a form of wealth. We get free from that unnecessary suffering by learning how to put that down. Learning how to focus on the things that really are our business rather than trying to pick up all these other unnecessary things in life. So it's in this way that discernment is a form of wealth. It keeps you secure from wasting your time on a lot of unskillful investments and focusing your time and things that really do give return and developing a sense of well-being, a sense of stability in your life that really is secure. Because as, as I said earlier, based on the... There's that principle and conviction that you really can, through your actions, put an end to suffering. And that you find... And in the course of the practice, you develop through your own discernment that there really is a way to do this. You learn how to internalize that way and you find ultimately that it is true. So those, that's the list of the Buddha's different treasures. You'll see of the seven, probably conviction and discernment are the most important. Conviction gives you, gets you focused on the issue, gets your actions that really are important in your life. Not the decisions that are being made on Wall Street, not the decisions that are being made down in Washington. It's what you're choosing to do right here, right now. That really is the important thing in life. And then discernment is your ability to see, okay, what's skillful and what's not skillful. And beyond that, it's beginning to see even more carefully what seems to be a good intention and what's the difference between a good intention and what's a really skillful intention. Because sometimes we go in with the idea, okay, my intentions are good, but you end up causing trouble. That's when you have to step back and look, okay, how much of that trouble is actually my fault and how much of that trouble was something that was beyond my control? And you learn over the course of time to begin to read the situation better and better and better, both inside and outside, um, that you can create less and less suffering for yourself and for the people around you. When you're not suffering so much, you're less of a burden. You're less burdened. You can actually help other people with their burdens as well. So it's in this way that developing these qualities gives rise to what we want out of wealth, which is on the one hand security, and on the other hand a sense of freedom. Years back, they did a, a survey of this kind of the psychology of being in a place. What kind of place? What kind of um, environment do people feel most comfortable in? And they found out after doing a lot of tests that people would like to live at the edge of a forest, facing a wide open meadow. The forest provides security; you have a sense of being sheltered. The wide meadow gives a sense of freedom. That's kind of a psychological wealth. And this is what the Buddha is providing in his teachings, a sense of security, that you have a safe basis for your happiness and that you have a wide range of freedom in terms of the choices you can make in life to be skillful to help yourself and to help people around you. 
those are my thoughts on the Buddha's investment strategy. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to give you a couple of minutes. Those of you have to leave. Now's your time. And if anyone wants to stay for questions and answers, we'll take questions and answers in a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.